By now you may have noticed that your local gym is either about to reopen or is reopened. And there's a lot of uncertainty about that. But one thing that is certain is that the experience will be different. Today's guest on Dr. D's social network is Graham Melstrand. Graham is the executive vice president for engagement for ACE. ACE is the American Council on Exercise. Graham is a longtime colleague of mine, and we have a discussion today on a variety of topics to include emerging legislation in health and fitness and wellness, and also some expectations or things to look for in your experience as you enter your local gym in the climate is very different than what you may be used to. Ladies and gentlemen, Graham Melstrand. Okay, Graham, thank you so much for being with me today. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's great to have the opportunity to reconnect. Yeah, definitely. And um, man, what a time. What a time. 2020 has been full of surprises and challenges and a lot of things going on. How have you navigated this whole time? Well, um, the, the same as, as, as everybody, I think. It's, it's unprecedented in so many ways, things that we haven't seen in our lifetime, maybe our parents haven't had experience with. And so it really is just a process of, um, of learning as we go, both, I think, individually and for our family and, and for our organization. Um, certainly, um, it's created opportunities for um, all of us at, at ACE and some of the other organizations that we're involved in to uh, participate in reevaluating how fitness services are delivered, how do we reopen, how do we deliver them safely, um, how do we create that customer experience to improve um, the um, confidence of individuals coming back? Um, but, um, you know, we're, we're learning as we go, just like everybody else. For sure. I think it's definitely a learning process. And I definitely want to get into kind of what you've seen in terms of opening, reopenings of gyms and things of that nature. But tell me a little bit about your process of, you know, your beginnings with ACE and, and in the business in general. Sure. Um, well, I, I started my career as, as an athletic trainer, and I was splitting that time between um, between more traditional high school and collegiate athletic settings and, and, and a physical therapy clinic. Um, so I came from the education and um, the practitioner perspective and actually had, um, had kind of a defining moment for me where I realized that um, it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do, that it was quite different than... Uh, than what I had envisioned when I, I chose that path and ended up on the um, commercial side of the fitness equipment um, industry, um, representing companies that had uh, some um, interest in the authenticity and the science and the programming and that valued that, and then was recruited to come back to ACE um, to really uh, try and, uh, I guess, um, contribute to what we've all envisioned as a, a more credible space for the exercise professional and for the broader fitness industry on the healthcare continuum, where we really are about uh, the population health and providing the leadership and expertise uh, to consumers that are trying to reach their personal health, fitness, or or sports performance goals. You know what's interesting? I sat in on, I think it was at URSA. I sat in on a presentation by Dr. Bryant, and. It was, it was, I think it was like the future of fitness or something to that effect. And I think ACE was going around kind of a tour of different cities and things of that nature. It was a while ago. Um, yes. And he talked about how we're making fit people fitter, generally speaking. And sure, that was a big initiative of ACE to kind of move beyond that. Where is that today in terms of what ACE is working on and kind of a, a, a a larger perspective in fitness and wellness. Well, um, you know that that still ultimately is our focus. When you look at the um, at, at the numbers in terms of participants in in what we could broadly describe as membership based fitness, um, they're fairly consistent as a percentage of the population, not just in North America but in uh, in, in Europe and um, and Asia as well. And so that number is um, reported broadly between 16 and 20%, but we've really struggled 
to attract that next 30% that are, are probably, uh, you know, at the point where they're ready to make some change, but they're looking for that leadership and expertise. Um, and uh, when you look at it from a, a popula- population health perspective, uh, there are so many of us, especially as we approach middle age with the responsibilities of work and family and everything else, that when we go and we have that annual physical, the doctor tells us what we heard the year before. You've gained another two pounds this year. You need to eat a little bit better. Um, we're starting to see some of the early signs, perhaps related to um, chronic disease, uh, and you need to change how you're living your life. And and for those of us that have heard that message, uh, it's like, well, that's terrific. I had to put on my pants to come here this morning. I recognize that when I had to suck it in to button my pants. Right. But what do I do? Where do I go for that leadership and expertise and, and that, um, you know, those programs in communities that, that can really get me started on the right path. And, and of course, uh, it's really not the physician or the nurse's place to, to provide that detail. It's not optimally what they're trained to deliver. And, and uh, it, it's not the right setting for that. So we are very bullish on, uh, on the emergence of, of health coaching, really looking at, at facilitating lifestyle and behavior change uh, in physical activity, nutrition, um, sleep, um, work-life balance, um, and upskilling exercise professionals, the personal trainers, the group exercise instructors, to incorporate more of those those facilitation tools around behavior change to help people achieve their goals, uh, which for the majority of people, we believe it is about their, uh, their healthy lifestyle, not necessarily, uh, especially as we get older, about the vanity or the sports performance. Those, those individuals are constants for us. Uh, and we're looking at, at trying to build those relationships with the healthcare uh, payer and, and other communities so that we can be that trusted uh, professional working in the community and the places that they work are trusted and recognized as the, um, as the, the hub in the community that facilitates the coordination of those programs and activities, whether they're inside of facilities or they occur outside where people are living their daily lives. Do you think that, you know, you talk about that next 30% or so, do you think that people are in some ways um, paralyzed or they're just overwhelmed with the amount of information that is available now due to the internet and all these resources about getting healthier or being well? Oh, sure. And and certainly uh, it's not only the volume of the material, it's trying to assess whether that information in uh, and material is credible um, and applicable to uh, to me or you or somebody else um, as, as an individual. And when you look at it, also from the context of uh, of wearable devices, uh, you know that there's very broad adoption on that. And now you have a lot of data that you can access and process through um, either the the apps and the resources that come with whatever device you're you're using but also third-party ones. And, um, and for a lot of people, I think that goes back to the same question. Is is like, well, I realize I don't move very much. If I'm tracking and monitoring what I eat, I eat more and more often than I thought. And it goes back to the now what? How do I interpret that, um, that information? What should I do with it? Um, and, and how do I make those initial steps uh, uh, towards change. And, and then, of course, if you've got somebody that can provide that leadership and that expertise um, to guide that experience, uh, then you're in a position where you can look at the data and say, okay, what happened here? Or look how well you've done here. What uh, what changed? Uh, and, and so I do think that that is, is certainly part of, of the challenge that we collectively face. How can people be, or how can they be directed towards resources that are credible or and are fact-based, evidence-based, um, and the plethora of information or the kind of the this huge amount of content that's on the internet and that's being pushed to them through different apps and you know resources. Sure, and, and that that's obviously a, a little bit of a a loaded question, and I think part of it goes to providing some. Uh, education and guidance into individual or to individuals in terms of, uh, of how do they assess um, the, the validity of, um, 
uh, of what they see based on, uh, you know, who prepared it. Information that comes from somebody like yourself with a, mm -hmm. a PhD in a relevant area uh, of study would be one of the first things. Is it supported by peer-reviewed research? Does it come from an organization uh, that uh, that is recognized as being credible, um, like ACE, like some of our peer organizations. Um, and, and quite frankly, it, is there a, a product angle associated with um, the information that they're providing? Yes. Are they trying to sell something uh, on that? And if it is product-based, you, you know, what um, what level of scrutiny has been applied to the, to the product that's associated with it? Um, so uh, with, with ACE, uh, obviously we... Uh, we look at um, at rooting everything we do in the science and then trying to translate that for practitioners and for consumers. And we look at the products and programs and services that they consume, particularly the ones that come um, onto the consumer's field of vision through uh, through the popular press uh, to determine are, are those things safe and effective? And, yeah. and you know, are they things uh, that could or should be used by consumers? Um, but even that's complicated, as you know, because the, the underlying question around any kind of physical activity program or regimen is, is a for what or for who question based on what their their health status is and what their goals are and what their expectations, either in terms of, of, of workplace vocation or, or athletic or recreational pursuit. You know, one of the things I've always really enjoyed about ACE is um, going to kind of the research section of your website, and you will do research studies on different modalities or, you know, different types of programs. And I always thought that was really interesting to, you know, what's the best, you know, exercises for bicep curls or something or testing out the shake weight. I think I remember that one was, it was pretty <laughs> funny. I was like, sure, these guys are hilarious. Like, yeah, the shoes. And I was like, man, this is good stuff. And uh, what's really interesting is I feel like all of a sudden I'm seeing infomercials again for like weird products, like just the other day. And I'm like, is this back? <laughs> like, what is going on here? You know? Yeah, they, they, they cycle, don't they? I think we've seen a resurgence in, in terms of the, um, the e-STEM devices and things like that are, are kind of yeah. coming into the field of vision again from Asia and Europe in particular. Uh, you know, I think what you're going to see in terms of some of the pivot on our research is that um, a, as we've engaged more in the public policy side of things and, and looking to create opportunities for investment that people can make in themselves on the preventive side of health, where we believe the vast majority of savings long-term could be, is that uh, while the exercise science community in academia has done a good job of, of researching when you do this, what happens? But that research to a large extent is, is primarily done on campus with um, populations that are on campus, whether they be student, faculty, or, or staff. And really what we're looking at at this point is trying to increase our investment in looking at what happens when you um, make a community-based investment in programs and can we actually move the needle uh, on, on some very basic things, moving people towards um, completing that 150 minutes a week of, of physical activity that, that's called for within the National Physical Activity Guidelines. Can we make a difference in, in increasing the diversity of what they're doing to include uh, strength training as, re as well as a cardiorespiratory training. And if we have programs that we're offering that are intended to either uh, prevent or, or mitigate uh, the consequences of, of some common inactivity-related chronic disease, can we, uh, can we see a change in behavior that's sustainable? Does it save uh, money and healthcare costs, and does it lead to higher quality of life and productivity? Um, those are the things that those communities are looking for from us. Uh, when you look at, at at pharma and other industries, they invest heavily in, in the research around uh, are the products that, and, and things that we're developing, um, what is their efficacy? Um, and we need to do the same in our space. Is um, ACE involved in any of the you know, legislation related to health and wellness, things that are bought, brought before the government related to um, policy making and changes to, you know, um, maybe licensure and things of that nature related to fitness professionals? 
Sure. Um, and, and we are active um, both at a, a state and federal level on that. A lot of that activity um, is through, uh, through coalitions of, of our peer organizations in the credentialing space um, or in health advocacy. Um, for instance, the Heart Association, uh, uh, Diabetes Association, people that have physical activity as part of their portfolio um, uh, around public policy for um, either the prevention or, or mitigation of um, uh, of the effects of, of those chronic disease conditions. And so, for instance, we participate um, at, at a board level with the Physical Activity Alliance, um, which is the recently merged uh, National Coalition for Promoting Physical Activity, National Physical Activity Society, and the National Physical Activity Plan Alliance. Uh, so they have a, a whole public policy portfolio uh, that, that's centered not just around physical activity, but around infrastructure uh, and, and everything else that, that we work in concert with others. Uh, um, the Coalition for Registration of Exercise Professionals that um, operates the U.S. Registry of Exercise Professionals. Um, we monitor policy activity uh, re related to the practitioners and the opportunities for them to participate more fully on the healthcare continuum uh, as a recognized and respected practitioner, uh, you know, within our, our collective scope of practice. Um, from a licensure standpoint, um, we had a lot of activity, um, states that were interested in that for uh, a period of time, three, four years, um, starting about 10, 10 years ago. And, and honestly, most of that activity was related to uh, um, a single or a small group of bad actors that policymakers were mm. were concerned about. It wasn't necessarily about the uh, uh, the proficiency of the practitioner uh, or or anything else. Um, we are in a period where um, where both ends of the political spectrum are kind of aligned in their desired outcome, which would be to reduce um, the the regulation of occupations and, and and for very different reasons. So. We don't really see much coming um, that, that we're concerned about on that front. And what we mm -hmm. do see is a desire to make um, a, a credible certification program kind of the cornerstone of what would be used to protect um, the, the, the public safety um, as it pertains to practitioners. Um, so we're, we're pretty comfortable with where we are right now. Um, if there's something that we're watching closely on behalf of the practitioner, it's, it's really as part of the broader health reform uh, that uh, many occupations are being tasked to do things that they haven't done um, traditionally, things that um, are, are now considered part of their scope of practice. And our desire is to make sure that as they're remodeling those practice acts for physical therapists, athletic trainers, nurses, um, that it doesn't impede the, uh, the autonomy um, or the scope of practice for, uh, for individuals that are working as exercise professionals. So what's the biggest opportunity or maybe the largest focus in legislation moving forward or for the future of, you know, fitness and wellness practitioners? Boy, I think there, there's a couple of areas on, on that. Um, one of the things that has been kicking around for a very long time that has a little bit of momentum behind it now is the uh, FIT Act, the Personal Health Investment Today yeah. Act, which would change the, uh, the, um, the definition of what's a, um, a covered or reimbursable expense on your flexible spending accounts mm -hmm. to include um, sports and physical activity related expenses, which we believe would be a boon to families that have um, children in youth sports and to fitness facilities and, and practitioners where people could use um, those dollars for their preventative health, uh, which is really, if you look at it to a large extent, it it, the biggest beneficiaries might be those under 30 or 35 years of age where they, they don't have significant expenses around, um, uh, around medications or, or, or other things yet, um, but would like to take advantage of, of that. And certainly for, um, for high school age athletes where there's, um, there's an increasing number of fees that, that parents are required to pay, um, for them to play that, that, that might make a big difference there. Um, uh, there's also, uh, a, a number of bills that are really kind of related to more chronic disease management um, and, and particularly uh, uh, around uh, obesity care 
that would make um, what's called intensive behavioral therapy um, a covered expense. Um, that's that lifestyle and behavior management that would accompany uh, many of the, uh, the the treatment protocols in terms of ensuring adherence and compliance. Uh, and uh, and those um, bills frequently include uh, a broader range of non-traditional providers that would include exercise professionals and health coaches. So we see some opportunities uh, there. Uh, there. Currently, though, the, uh, the the attention, if you will, on, on preventive health, particularly as it pertains to physical activity, uh, is, is quite low, uh, although military readiness and, and certainly the current COVID situation where people that have better health status uh, are less affected um, and less severely affected um, by, by COVID uh, may change some of those things or at least bring uh, our, our area to the forefront. Uh, and give us an opportunity to have those conversations. What are you seeing in terms of demographics and, you know, and looking as like trends in terms of how like younger generation millennials and as generation Z versus, you know, boomers and things of that nature, has that changed in terms of the usage or um, consumption of health and wellness or fitness and wellness services and different research that you've seen? Um, I think that's less clear. The Sports Fitness Industry Association is um, is concerned about um, youth sports participation um, has been on the decline. Um, and of course, we see rising rates of o- overweight and obesity across all age groups. Uh, and uh, the, the, the population that's inactive um, continues to climb. Uh, I think where we do see some um, some real variances, uh, the choice of activities that people are engaging in it, it is a lot is a lot broader, uh, and uh, it, it would just be anecdotally. But uh, here, where I live in in Arizona, certainly during the uh, the shelter in place that that recently ended here, uh, there were a lot more people that were out walking, bicycling with uh, yeah. you know with their families and 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 active that way and. One of the things that's kind of interesting to note on on that, and I was having a conversation with a, a, a colleague, is is in some ways the the COVID situation uh, has really caused a little bit of pause in the uh, in, in the built environment um, um, discussion in, in that those communities that are higher density, more walkable, and things like that. If you have to shelter in place in your home, uh, there's less space to do that there's less opportunities available and access uh, to, to be out. I don't think that changes the long-term strategy. I think it's just an interesting blip uh, on the surface, but there's certainly for, uh, you know, for individuals that are living in, in less dense environments, suburban or, or rural, uh, it, it, it opened up um, time and, and opportunity for people to, um, to be active because there's only so much television you can watch, especially <laughs> when there isn't any, any live sports available. Right, exactly. I'm in Washington State, and uh, and a very beautiful outdoorsy environment. So it was just a lot of people walking around constantly. Where are you now? I'm in Blaine, Washington. So right on the border of Canada, literally right on the border. And, My parents uh, actually live on in Blaine on Point Whitehorn. Oh my and gosh! Are you serious? Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're just they're just past the the state park there in Blaine. Yeah, so yes, it is a state park. Yeah, yeah, beautiful place to be. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I I probably live minutes from your parents actually, uh, right over there. So um, that's that's crazy actually. That's super <laughs> funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're up this way sometime. We got we got to uh, you know catch some coffee or something. You know? Oh, I'd love to. That would be great. Talk shop. I don't always get the, get the chance to do that. Um, you know, especially living up here, it's so it's more isolated, you know, if you've been around this way, it's just, it's just so beautiful, man, it's, it's stunning. Um, but I wonder what has been, what I want to look at it two ways from your perspective. What did you think about the fitness industry, wellness industry activity? Once things started to go, a like gym started closing and where do what do you think about it now as gyms are reopening? Okay. Yeah. Thank. Thank you for this question because I think this is a super important one. Um, obviously, um, like, like other areas that are either directly in hospitality or border hospitality, uh, 
the, the, the shutdown has been devastating to, um, to the businesses and to the, the people that work in them. Uh, and, and there's been a real sense of loss around the, uh, the sense of community and, and the programs and services that they provide to the, to the public. I think in a lot of ways, it's, it's very much a, a, a wake up call, um, for all of us that work in the fitness space. Um, and, and there's a couple elements of that, that, that I guess I'd like to, to highlight the, the, the first is, is that traditionally, uh, the, the fitness industry has been very interested in delivering fitness service and programs, um, inside of fitness facilities on the opposite side of, of the front desk. And they've been less comfortable with the idea of delivering programs and services that are, are, are based in the community or that would utilize um, the equipment and resources that, uh, that, that people have at home or kind of their preferred activity, whether it's, it's cycling or running or, or those other things. And so when, when the lockdown um, started and people um, had to close their businesses, they didn't have a service delivery model in place that both allowed them to stay in contact with and support their, uh, their customers and their clients. And probably more importantly, their revenue streams weren't diversified that allowed them to continue to generate operating income um, during the, uh, the close down. So I think that this is really an opportunity for, uh, for all of us to re-envision how we can uh, really move in a direction where we're moving to be, particularly for personal trainers, paid for their time setting up equipment, coaching directly in front of the individual, the traditional counting um, repetitions to really being paid for their expertise, um, more on, along the lines of what you see with individuals that are participating um, in the endurance coaching professions, um, where a lot of those services can be delivered at a distance in the, in the skills and the assessments are taught in in, in person, but you're doing a programmatic delivery where you're paid for the program rather than your face-to-face time. Um, I, I certainly think that some of the transition and innovation that we've seen um, is a good start on that in terms of the delivery of, of group exercise um, programs that can be home-based and organizations like um, like Orange Theory and Planet Fitness and others have, um, have responded quickly to develop um, an at-home experience, if you will, for for their members, um, but I don't think we're quite at the point yet where um, where we've got something that will be necessarily uh, easy to monetize. Um, but I think that that innovation will come relatively soon because the carrying capacity for facilities as they reopen uh, right now in most states that are open is between twenty-five and fifty percent of what they would normally see. And so providing that added value of what do you do when you're not at the gym and how can I support you in your daily life um, is going to be at a premium. So what are some of the initial feedback that maybe you've, you've heard or from colleagues, you know, maybe you have facilities about the attitudes and behaviors or just thoughts people are having about getting back into gyms and, you know, maybe their, the fears, their acceptance, things anything along that spectrum? Well, I think we've all seen the surveys. Um, the Washington Post had one um, which indicated that um, fitness facilities um, were one of the last things that they were thinking about mm-hmm. um, wanting to I- engage with um, a- as part of the return. Although when you look at the uh, all of the different things that they identified, they were all very tightly bunched between about 60% and about 75%. Um, I-, I think that... Um, your your core audience in states that are open and we're open here in Arizona um, is back um, to a large extent there. Um, the organizations have um, done a very good job of kind of communicating uh, what that's going to look like and what's expected from the participants and also preparing their staff and training their staff for what that is. Um, and um, and they're back. So I've, I've been back at, at our gym for a couple of weeks now. Um, it's, it's not quite that third place experience that we all talk about because there, there is kind of uh, an underlying um, element of discomfort because you have the staff in, in, in masks and visors. They're doing a health check as you come in. Um, you have to be scheduled. Uh, and, and those are all things that 
seem kind of out of alignment with the, Mm -hmm. my work day is over. This is about relaxing before I rejoin my family. And it's part of the transition to, uh, to my at home life. Um, but I also believe that people think that it's temporary, um, and and that they're willing to make that sacrifice in, in in the near term. And, um, I, I think that, um, in, in many cases, facilities are putting their best foot forward, um, and the staff are too. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I think it's it's interesting how this is all playing out. I mean, do you do you envision that? You know, I mean, it's hard to know. You know, predicting things. Obviously, that a year from now or so, that gyms may look very similar to what they used to be, or that there will be some level of the gym experience that will remain the same during the, as it is right now. Oh, I, I, I sure hope that um, we're looking at an evolved experience where, uh, where again, the, the physical plant of the facility is, is the focal point of the community that kind of adds to the legitimacy because it's bricks and mortar and you have programs and services that are delivered there, plus those that are delivered uh, re- remotely or, or in the community that people can access um, and, and that there's an opportunity to attract uh, maybe a brand new participant that's more conscious and concerned about their, their, their health and ready to make um, that, that investment. I, I certainly think that for many facilities uh, in the absence of, of some type of, um, of like facility certification, if, if you will, similar to what the Medical Fitness Association offers for their membership, uh, that, the, um, that, that kind of the self-evaluation of, of businesses uh, as they're preparing to reopen and have to prepare their plan that, that both inspires the confidence in their staff and their members, but also conforms to, with what the cities, counties, and states are, are requiring for them to open, um, will, um, will help them practice kind of that self-improvement, that Kanban, like they would talk about in, in manufacturing. You think on some level, and obviously we don't, you you don't want pandemics to happen and causing things to stop and for people to think about things, but it happens like on this level in some way, is it positive for people to have to think about more about being deliberate about how they're offering their services and their business? Because often I feel like in our business that, you know, you're running a gym or you're operating something, you're just going, 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 going constantly. And in many ways, has it been positive for people to step back running facilities and say, maybe I need to reevaluate how I'm doing this and how we're offering these things. I hope that after we pass through the pain of this, that that will be one of the positive outcomes. You know, if there's a silver lining um, in, in all of this, uh, certainly um, when you look at this on a, on a global level, um, we were what's seven plus million this morning um, coming up on 2 million probably today or tomorrow uh, in, in the U.S., uh, the you, you know the, the 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 personal consequences, the life costs, the economic cost on this um, are, um, are are almost unimaginable. Um, except it's unfolding right in front of us um, a, a, as we watch. Um, I, I do think that um, that operators and professionals that have said, "Okay, what can I do that's constructive?" Well, I can't do what I been doing. Uh, I, I think that people are changing their behaviors and, and investing in their businesses and in themselves, perhaps in different ways than they have, uh, because they're looking for something constructive to do uh, that kind of uh, mitigates some, some of the, uh, you, you know, the stress and frustration around not being able to, uh, to, to kind of live and, and work normally. Do you feel that, um, you know, ACE and, you know, the peer organizations, peer organizations, they have a positive mindset towards the increasing trend of technology or, or virtual activities related to fitness and wellness operations? Um, I, I think so. Um, you know, we had to make a, a very aggressive pivot as an organization as and as employees of, of ACE. Uh, back in March, we were already experimenting a little bit with uh, with work from home um, the, the week before we were required to shut down uh, our, our offices. So we actually moved everybody over a 48 hour period of time to work from home two days in advance of, of the state order and, mm-hmm. 
in California, and, and then with the cancellation of URSA and IDEA and some of the other con- conferences, um, you know, we we made a decision on, on a couple of different levels. One, we needed to provide current and timely education as it related to uh, to COVID, to programming for clients remotely, uh, to the policy tax and and stimulus information, um, and, and you know how to approach. Uh, seeking uh, unemployment benefits even for individuals that were displaced, particularly those that were independent contractors, so they were included. So we built a, a resource pace page and we're providing uh, uh, multiple times a week um, webinars and delivered uh, a, a one-day virtual conference for our, our professionals. So we've been moving at a rate of change internally that uh, is accelerated compared to our normal oper- operations. And certainly technology is a, is a big part of that. Um, and, and so we're trying to support um, not just our professionals, but, but the industry around, you know, how do we make that pivot? And then how do we make it a permanent part of what we do moving forward? Right, definitely. What do you think of the conference space, you know, on fitness and wellness conferences? Do you see those being uh, an evolution of that? Because, um, you know, I, I attend uh, many myself and, and sometimes I, I get this feeling, and I talk to my business partner, I'm like, this model may be changing at some point of being in booths and, you know, shaking hands and all that thing and walking floors. I, I don't know. It's just speculation on my part and thinking, you know, but wh- where do you see that going? You, you know, I, I'm not sure that I'm the best person to, to <laughs> talk to uh, about that. Like you, you, you know, it's it's been a habit and something that we've, we've used um, to connect with uh, um, customers, peers, colleagues, professionals uh, over over decades. Uh, certainly the con- conference landscape um, doesn't look good through at least the end of the calendar year. Right. Uh, but I do see that, um, I, I mean, you, you know our space. It's um, pe- People are social. They want to be together. They want to exercise together. They want to share ideas with their peers and and. Many of them enjoy the travel and the opportunity to see someplace new, and maybe not quite be under the, um, you, you know, uh, under the microscope like they might be in 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 some of their hometowns. Right. Uh, but I, I see that there's going to be a pivot to a more sophisticated uh, online conference. Um, um, Anthony Wall, who's um, our director for our international business development, recently participated in a conference that was um, held in, in Asia where um, they had a, a virtual conference floor. They had um, rooms that you could wander in and out of with the different presenters and things like that. So I think we're going to see some innovation there. And I think certainly the ability for individuals to uh, participate either um, in the physical location or at a distance will be, um, will be improved over time. Um, it, it's obviously a very, very difficult time financially for the uh, for the conference um, hosting organizations in terms of, of the economics of it, particularly those who were early, like an URSA, uh, you know, that were right up against the ordered shutdowns. I, I think there'll be a premium if you are going to do a live conference or workshop on having um, the, uh, you, you know, appropriate insurance uh, with, you know, with all the terms where they couldn't exclude it for something like um, like this, just you know, just because of the the, the economic consequences of uh, of them. Um, but I think we're going to see. Um, I think we're going to see a blend, and I think it's going to take a little bit for people to get confident to going back um, and being around larger groups of people. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in my experience in being in conferences, I mean, especially like an URSA, I mean, it's just a huge amount of people in one space, and especially yes. in a big, huge platforms and vendor platforms and the workout areas it i it will be interesting to monitor that and i often think about kind of the digital space and even um you know virtual reality you know what would be living in a world at some point where you could put on a headset and be virtually transported to a conference that's not the same but and that it feels the feelings of being at a conference and, and holographic technology, and maybe I'm very science fictiony, I guess, but you know, <laughs> you know, science fiction often is a, in many times a good indicator of future reality, actually. Sure. Um, oh, absolutely. 
Yeah, and and I don't know what people's behavior will be. I suppose it depends uh, on the individual. I, I've I've seen some people uh, kind of um, offhand comment to say I wasn't sure if I was an introvert or extrovert until all of this happened, and now I know. I either really <laughs> miss being around people, or my life didn't really change that much. Um, <laughs> but I, I do think that there's kind of a cumulative fatigue. That, that people are having and they want to be out and they want to do the things socially that they've done before with other people. And, and then it's, I think it's going to be really a matter of, of the personal responsibility around the distancing and wearing a face mask and the hand washing to, you know, to mitigate the, uh, you know, the potential consequences of kind of that reintegration. So my, my gym up here is the, is the resort, the Simiyama resort I go to here and it's not open for the gym yet, but so I'm curious, as your experience or anybody else's that you you know, is there an expectation for face mask in the gym for the consumer, or you know, is the, the gym equipment spread out? Take us through that a little bit. Just it's just yeah. curiosity, you know. Yeah. So um, obviously, there um, the recommendations when you look at those from the um, you know from the CDC and the World Health Organization are that that everybody um, wear masks. The uh, the practical portion of that is, is that there's a, a high level of expectation that a majority of customers have that the staff are, are getting a, a daily health check in with their employer, that they're wearing gloves and masks and sometimes visors, or that there's the, the plastic shields around the front desk and that all of the equipment is, is, is distance and sanitized uh, according to the guidelines. Uh, the expectation in practice that I think that we see for participants is that uh, is that they wear a mask to enter the facility and they have it in their pocket and they're able to participate in their class or using the piece of equipment uh, without it. And then that they would put it back on as they're moving back through the common spaces. And then of course, facilities are doing a pretty nice job based on what I've seen as are many grocery stores about creating routing um, to, mm -hmm. to minimize the, um, I guess the head-on interactions with with individuals, uh, but I do think, and I've I've been out to uh, a couple of restaurants. I'm much more confident and comfortable when I see the staff are all wearing masks, and when people are wandering around, um, going to or from, say the, you know the uh, the lobby of the restaurant or or the restroom, if they're wearing them. Um, but, uh, you know, I think I think it's a, as much of a confidence thing as it is a, a professional um, courtesy. Uh, so I, I think that's what we're going to see on that. And, of course, many areas of the facilities are, are, are going to be closed, at least for a period of time yet. Have you seen how it has affected uh, group exercise classes, seen much smaller class sizes because of this, because of the, the distance aspect of it? Sure. So I was at an Orange Theory this morning at... Um, at six o'clock and, and here in Arizona, they're running 50% uh, um, capacity and nobody's allowed to share in any equipment and they have a routing as they rotate through their, uh, their, their different stations. Uh, so, uh, you know, the uh, kind of the community feel and energy is a little bit different than you'd have uh, in, in a crowded group exercise room. It looks a, looks a little bit weird. Uh, as as somebody that's been in the in the industry and, and worked as an operator and a manager, uh, if you're looking at it through the traditional eyes, you look in there and you see ten or fifteen or twenty people, and you go, "Boy, that's terrible." Uh, <laughs> right. But but right now, when you look at it, you go, "That's just right." <laughs> yeah. Uh, so um, it, you you have to kind of uh, you, you have to look at it through a little bit different lens at the moment, um, and uh, I I do think that the Kind of, kind of the care and the measured pace of of returning to larger capacity uh, is something that's warranted and that that consumers also appreciate. It's very interesting you mentioned that because I think like I was used to running uh, like a luxury private residential club, and you know where you'd have eight people in class. That's like a big class, you know. For yes. it, so, and now that would seem to be like well, you you could almost have a very similar behavior with that and participants were like, yeah, that's probably just about right still, you know, whereas I think about the very large commercial facilities going from 80 to a hundred people in a class now really being downsized tremendously. 
for that. Yeah, and then sure. the behaviors of reserving time, you know. <laughs> well, and, and, and again, I think that, uh, you know, people uh, that want to be back, especially the early adopters, like the confidence of, of, of the structure. We've certainly seen larger operators like, um, like Lifetime and Equinox that have uh, sports courts and things that weren't going to be uh, usable for their intended purpose. Things like basketball courts in particular have converted those to um, group exercise so that they could accommodate uh, you, you know, larger groups. Uh, and so I think that's a, a good utilization of the space. I, I think of like a lot of the older um, kind of racquetball-based clubs that you see frequently up in the Northwest where they've converted a racquetball court, 800 square feet for the purposes of a spinning or a yoga class. When you look at that 800 square feet, you divide that out and include the space for the instructor. Now, all of a sudden you have five people. Uh, you, you know, that that's, that's a tough thing for me to look at um, economically in terms of the return on, uh, on the investment um, in, in that space. But but some revenue is is better than none. Um, but I, I think we're all collectively concerned about will you know what percentage of facilities won't survive the shock, same as you'd have in in restaurants and and other businesses through this. Do you believe that there will be uh, some percentage of clubs that will never open again, or in your mind or, or that open and close? Yes. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and what we've seen. Um, start because obviously Asia and Europe is a little bit ahead of where we are. Um, what we've seen in, in Asia is our, our, um, our education partners in China are reporting that um, in March when facilities reopened, that there was 30% that, um, that weren't able to restart uh, and, and that there are some that are continuing to struggle that, that, that may not make it even though they're back open. Uh, I, I'm hoping um, as a result of the, the PPP and other programs, that that um, that that will not be um, not be the case here in in the U.S. But I, I'm certain that we're going to see some that uh, that don't. And while we have um, Gold's Gym decided not to reopen a number of their corporate facilities, um, ones that are certainly have that have um, the backing of venture capital and things are probably better. Um, better position to survive than than some smaller independent businesses. Yeah, I was actually I was in a conversation with several of my colleagues, and this was really during the height of the lockdown, and they were predicting about twenty five percent of these places would not reopen. Generally, for that, you know, smaller boutique clubs and things of that nature, or that owners would say they just don't want to reopen. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah, I think there's going to be some of some of that too. In fact, there have been some other interesting podcasts on that, that, um, that, uh, you know, some of, some of your colleagues in terms of the podcast space, uh, other industry leaders, um, Tom Plummer and others that, that have addressed that, that subject that if, 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 it, if you bought yourself a job, if you weren't making money already, if you don't have the energy to reopen, um, or, or the financial resources, um, now is the opportunity to bow out gracefully. Um, right. Which I think is 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 kind of a uh, unique perspective that nobody likes to talk about, um, but uh, we know that these are our energy and, um, and and financial intensive businesses that people run to create an experience for their for their members. Do you think that on some level that um, you know the spacing aspect of being in gyms? You know, most of the time, what we're what we've been used to, especially in very large gyms, is you know, cardio stacked on top of each other, people crammed in there. There's, there's some level of maybe like it's nicer to not have so many people on top of each other. You know, I think, I think there's going to be something to that, at least for a period of time. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you've experienced it personally, but if you're, if you're out and about and then all of a sudden you find yourself, uh, you know, around more people than you'd like right now, you get just a little <laughs> bit skittish. Right. Uh, I, I think that that's going to be the case for a, a, a period of time. Um, I don't know if you're kind of referring to um, a lot of the low price, high value models. Uh, you know, what, what kind of more permanent changes we might see um, for, for those. Um, no, nobody has a crystal ball on that. Yeah. You know, I just, I'm just thinking about just more of just the, sometimes you're so used to this one behavior and like, 
you know, you might go in a place and there's 30, 40 treadmills just lined up literally right next to each other. And there's a sense that sometimes people aren't comfortable or unwilling to be in places like that because it's just so tightly packed. Mm-hmm. And 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 I just wonder if some people may think, hey, you know, maybe this is a much more spaced out, relaxed environment now. While economically that may not be good for the operator, I wonder if the participant or consumer says, hey, I actually like this better, that there's less people in here type of thing, you know. I expect that a lot of operators, large and small, are going to be aggressively surveying their participants and their members for um, for feedback um, very much along those lines in terms of what they like, what they don't like, what they expect moving forward. Yeah. And uh, again, I think it's a point of deflection for the industry where uh, where we can grow. Very yeah, bullish on, totally. on that. Totally. I think there's a lot of... Uh... A lot of um, branches or tentacles um, from this, and that we can learn from. Well, I have to tell you, Graham, this is uh, packed with information, lots of good conversation. I think a lot of people in our business are really going to benefit from a lot of the things that you uh, information you have provided. I appreciate you spending some time with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Always happy to talk. And uh, you know, you mentioned uh, Simiamu. Um, when my wife and I were training for the rock and roll marathon a couple of years ago, we used to run from, um, my parents' house to the resort at Simiamu and then, um, grab a bite to eat at Packers looking out over the water. So I know know it well. (laughs) (laughs) I was just, I went to Packers the first day it opened last Friday. It was really weird because I mean, I have this like very long term relationship with Packers before moving up here two years ago, I used to come and visit. Uh, and go to the resort and eat at Packers, have some cocktails there. And I'm sure. like, it's so different from what it's used to being like. It's so sterile in Packers now. It, you know, the the glass guards, the plexiglass guards, and the bartenders. You know, it's just an adjustment. But uh, if you, if uh, listeners, if you haven't been to the Simiama Resort and Packers, and the ama- it's amazing, beautiful view. Of absolutely of the of the harbor, you can see Canada from across from the restaurant. And actually, the first day we went back on Saturday. Just how much I love this place. Went back again to Packers on Saturday, and we were sitting outside having dinner, and we saw some whales. It was incredible. Oh my gosh! Just I, in fact, I saw a video just yesterday from um, Bellingham that people were watching a pod of orca whales under underneath a dock. So yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's an amazing place up there, and I'm hoping to make a be able to make a trip up to see my parents um, sometime soon if if we can get to the point where I wouldn't have to spend ten days in quarantine after I get there. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, not a terrible place to spend quarantine, honestly. I mean, summertime up here is amazing if you can get up. But um, what a pleasure uh, to connect with you again, Graham, and, and thank a- you for all you do for our industry, our business, and your how much you care. And we, we need that. So thank you. Well, well, thank you for your leadership and for the opportunity. I'd love, love to come back another time. It's you great got to it. catch up with you. For sure. Thanks a lot, man. All right. Have a great day. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the rate and review section. Thanks, everyone.